0: whatever it takes. And it's, it's interesting. You um, referred to my motorcycle adventure on a children's motorcycle. <laughs> in fact, I, I needed an adventure of a new kind in 2020 and uh, signed up with a friend to go to Mongolia and race children's motorcycles, 49 CC <laughs> motorcycles for 10 days ac- across Mongolia. And uh, the, the company that organized it, they Know how to define adventure. It's because they didn't even tell us where we were going to start or where we were going to end. So we didn't even have the opportunity to do, you know, how guides were always like looking at maps and doing tour planning and looking at like shortcuts and ways that we can maximize number of summits or whatever. None of that. We had paper maps. They told us where we were going to start and where we're going to finish literally the day we got on the plane to go to Mongolia, which is no. Easy place to get to, and uh, and then they bust us out to um, the the world's tallest statue of Genghis Khan, and, and we started there. They introduced
1: as, as, you do, little, as one does.
0: That's yeah. right. Introduced us to point. our little mini motos and uh, told us where the finish line was. And of course, uh, you, they expect you're going to run out of gas. You don't speak the language. You're going to get lost, and um, you have to carry everything that you need for 10 days on a 40cc motorcycle
2: welcome to all aspects a podcast where we explore discuss and celebrate adventure culture and outdoor lifestyle it is our mission to educate inform and entertain our fellow adventurers about the inherent risks that surround us every time we go outside to play and to provide you with the knowledge and tools to help you do the things you love the most in the safest way possible All Aspects is brought to you by Aspect Abbey. Aspect Abbey is on a mission to save lives by making avalanche safety simple. It is the only app that tells you where the high and low risk zones are for today's avalanche danger. With a suite of built-in tools like forecast verification, slope meter, and gear checklist, Aspect Abbey is the new safety standard for avalanche risk management. Remember, there are dozens of apps that get you into the backcountry, but there is only one that's designed to bring you home and that's Aspect Abbey. Go to aspectabbey.com to learn more or download the app to start your 30-day free trial. Thank you, Aspect Abbey, for making this show possible, and thank you for listening. All right, let's get to the show. Jeff, you're looking extra fast today, and we have a very special guest, which is Angela Haas. She's looking the... very
0: smart today.
2: <laughs> um, before we go into all your credentials, Angela, I... I usually like to start these off with just a ridiculous fun fact, kind of throw everyone off beat and just see where we all go. So this one's a two parter. So buckle up kids. Do you guys know how much a male African elephant weighs?
1: One to two tons.
0: Three to four tons. Okay. Angela, you're closer.
2: It's, it's, it's seven metric tons, metric tons.
0: Get out of here, Jeff,
2: get out of here with that. (laughs) No way. We're, okay. we're just
1: talking about snow stuff. It's all metric.
0: I haven't even been to Africa yet.
1: We're talking.
0: <laughs> what? <Ditto. laughs> okay, wait. I this know. is the second you part to this have fact. Been to.
1: Dave's been on safari. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: okay. Don't hold it against me. <laughs> um, okay. So, an African elephant, a male African elephant weighs roughly seven tons. Wow. That's, that's a lot. That's metric a lot. or Imperial. So, imperial lbs baby so now knowing that how many elephants does it take to weigh as much as a u.s aircraft carrier
1: (laughs) one million
2: okay it's lower than that so a u.s (laughs) aircraft carrier weighs a hundred thousand tons
1: i was told there'd be no
2: Math on so,
0: this podcast. Yes, I was told there would be straightforward questions. An
2: elephant <laughs> weighing it at seven tons means that That's it's roughly pounds. Roughly for you listeners at home. Here I got this right. I got it written down. I was prepared. Fourteen thousand two hundred and eighty-five elephants equal one aircraft carrier. Hard hitting stuff.
0: But Is would they kind of thing? I don't think they'd fit in that aircraft carrier.
2: <laughs> that's, that's that's a good point. Imagine all the poo. All right. Well, <laughs> now that we uh, got that one going out of the way.
0: Good little icebreaker.
2: Jeff, do you want to uh, do you want to introduce Angela since you guys go way back and you want to speak her praises?
1: Sure. Um, it's pretty exhaustive. Her resume is uh, <clears throat> makes me feel like a slacker. I got to say, but. <laughs> In short, um, she's just stepped down from serving her term as president of the American Mountain Guides Association. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you were the second IFMGA guide as a woman, right?
0: Yes, that's yep, correct.
1: Kathy Coesley, Houston, yep. And, I know Margaret Wheeler. Oh, okay, so you're, you're three?
0: President. Yes. Well, no. yeah, and then the second
1: president. Then the second yeah. president, yep, Yeah. Yep. And, um, you know, historically, guide associations have been just male 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 and so i think it speaks volumes that 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 you you were chosen to to lead a a vastly male dominant organization that's changed and evolved over time and we can get into that a little bit more but you're also a technical delegate you're on the technical committee for the amga setting the technical standards of hey this is how we're going to train guides this is the official party line but also for the ifmga correct
0: that's correct. I'm the vice president of the technical commission of the IFMGA. from GA. You're shaking up
1: the old boys club, Angela.
0: I am doing my best. Seems yeah. to be my life's mission um, to jump in there with both feet.
1: Yep. And you've been involved with all kinds of other, I guess we could call them passion projects as well. And I, I, it seems like the theme that I see in your work, in your CV, is that you're always giving back to the mountain community. And I thought that was really cool. And... Um I'd like a follow up of that later. We'll put a pin in that and hear about some of your passion projects that you've been involved with and ways you give back to the mountains and to the mountain communities. Um, but then you're also on the instructor team for the AMJ. So you train and examine new guides. And um, what's your favorite color?
0: Oh, boy, you just threw that right out there. Um, I'm going to say yellow. Oh, I love the sun.
1: All right. Oh, well, you have a very sunny disposition, that's for sure, and I think that's one of the things that attracted me to your personality is that you're incredibly curious and relentless and a real hard worker as well. And I'm like, ooh, I, I want I want some of that to rub off on me, and it makes for very interesting discussion. So we've we've loosely scripted this one, but I'm really curious to see where we go and where we end up. Um, so the to in in short, wrap up like there's not too many people that line up with your amount of experience, your certifications, and the way you also give back to the mountain community. Cause you also teach avalanche classes on the rec level, but more now on the pro level. So you're, you're the pros, pro teaching them the super expert.
0: And- Actually, I've never, I've never taught in the rec program. I've oh. always been just a practitioner. Um, and then when oh. the pro programs rolled out, it uh, was, it was a good fit for me because I had been working in all the capacities of uh, forecasters, backcountry, guide, guide, operation
1: patrol, Yeah, guide, yeah yep. all
0: that, mm-hmm. but I, is- I've never taught the rec programs, which, um, I might evolve into doing that. It seems like another great way to give back.
1: Yeah. Cause it's, it's interesting. There's all these spokes of the, of the wheel coming off the avalanche hub. And I thought that was really illuminating for me as mountain guides, were trying to avoid, Whereas ski patrollers were trying to hunt them and kick them off to make it safe for the public. And then heli guiding is kind of an interesting mix where we have explosives, but we can't mitigate as much as say ski patrol can. And so we're doing a combination of hunting them and avoiding them with clients at the same, um, maybe on the same day. So yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah exactly. Yeah.
2: yeah. All right. Um, well, Jeff, thank you very much for that. Back to you, that, Dave. Intro. that was, that was <laughs> very thorough. Um, <laughs> I wanted to, since we were kind of talking about the guide thing, Angela, can you, is it true that you were, you're one of only 11 women to have the IFMGA certification?
0: No. (laughs) There's more. Yes. Okay. There's uh, 15. Was that just
2: when you got it?
0: I was the sixth woman in the U S. Um, and now there's 15 women that have been trained, certified by the AMGA in the U S and we don't have exact, um, numbers from the IFMGA, but it's likely that there's, um, you know, well over like a couple hundred women that Mm -hmm. are certified internationally out of 7,000. Got 7,000 guides total. So it's for, still very, very much a minority in the U.S. We have yeah. now we've uh, just recently certified our 200th IFMGA mountain guide, which is huge.
2: Wow. Nice. So this was actually kind of fun because you and I met each other just filming, doing some videos for YouTube, basically. And my only prerequisite to knowing you was just what Jeff told me. It was like, you're the president of the American Mountain Guide Association and you're a badass. Like that was it. <laughs> and so then, you know, like 48. we went, we meet up, we hang out, we shoot some videos. Like we had a lot of fun. It was a fun day. And then it was, it was cool that you agreed to come and do this because I got to kind of go and like look into you and kind of like read through all your accomplishments. And I listened to the blister podcast you did back in like, oh, nice. 2019. And it is, it's like such a classic. I feel like this happens a lot in the ski world. That's all I have exposure to. But where you're just sort of hanging out with someone. And then the more you start learning about them, you're like, whoa, wow. Like that person is so unassuming and chill. And then they just have this like, (trafting) this awesome accomplishments list. So I, this was like kind of a pleasure to go through and learn a little more about you in this way. And now I, now I get to kind of like talk to you about some of this stuff.
0: Oh, that's, (laughs) that's, I'm flattered. You know, all that stuff is (laughs) That's all what I've done, but that's not who I am, you know? So when I'm with people like you and Jeff hanging out, I'm, I'm just me and all that stuff is my experience. And for some reason I've been, uh, relentlessly driven to just go on from one thing to the next and I've enjoyed it throughout and learned a ton, but, uh, I don't really define myself by the things I've done. It's more just being me.
2: Well, I feel like that's a very humble and admirable way to go through life, to be honest. And it's probably why you're so fun to hang out with, because you're not all, look at me, look at me.
0: It's probably why I'm still alive, too. (laughs) (laughs) The, The mountains
1: have a way of serving up that... Dose of humble pie on a regular basis.
0: That's right. Exactly.
1: (laughs) Angela, I got to say that the inner Terry Gross in me is like chewing through my tongue to to like not ask you. So how would you describe yourself? Like, let's take away all the the accolades, (laughs) all the achievements, all the certifications. Who is Angela Haas? Or, you know, how do you see yourself?
0: Well, that's, I have a name, that's my name, Angela Hawes, but who I am is um, someone who has gone through life um, with struggles like everyone else and and has learned from them. And I'm trying to get back to that inner child that was the perfect semblance of me. And Mm -hmm. through all these experiences, I get closer to that because I begin to realize that I'm I'm just like everybody else and we're all connected in that special way. And so more than, um, more than I did like the last 40, 50 years, I'm just trying to just be as present as possible and be totally comfortable in my own skin and, um, and walk my talk as much as possible. That's, Mm. that's Mm. what I'm trying to do. And, and, and I'm not really trying, I'm just doing it.
2: Does and, I mean you spent you spent so much time in the mountains? Does is that still your, your happy place? You're still your safe place, like where you go out and it's like, oh yeah, it's
0: yeah. Like yesterday, I just climbed up Red Three with a part ski partner and just had amazing turns. A little bit rocky on the way down. We chose a you know the most conservative line down, and and we you know checked out the snowpack on the way up and listened to all the signs and used aspect avi, which I'm really, um, trusting to be a, a, a good partner in the mountains as well. And had, it was a beautiful day. It was supposed to be like, I don't know, 20 below wind chill, but there wasn't a breath of wind. We are on the summit. It was like blue and unbelievably we haven't had much wind effect with the last couple storms. So it was just a, finally a blanket of snow everywhere. And, uh, just a, a, another beautiful day in the mountains yeah so that's my happy place and skiing has definitely become my my passion sport and something that I wish I could do it all year round
2: mm. is that and of... had... Oh Jeff you go
1: all right sorry to step on your toes Dave but yeah oh, you know, Angela you've had adventures all over the world and I loved hearing about your your motorcycle trip through Mongolia and you know <laughs> big Himalayan peaks and like all over the place and and for decades and decades what, what does adventure mean to you what 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 do you seek when you're going on an adventure
0: yeah you know every day's an adventure really but when i'm like going on a adventure um even just I, yesterday's
1: adventure because you yeah, said even,
0: you know, just supposed to be like
1: this but it's always a little different and you have to adapt totally.
2: yeah
0: Totally. Well, you know, for me, an adventure is like just going out and and having a bit of a plan, but just being open to all the things that emerge along the way that influence the decisions and the direction that I go with whatever whatever it takes. And it's interesting you um, referred to my motorcycle adventure on a children's motorcycle. (laughs) In fact, I, I needed an adventure of a new kind in 2020 and uh, signed up with a friend to go to Mongolia and race children's motorcycles, it's 50, 49cc oh motorcycles goodness. for 10 days ac- across Mongolia. And uh, the, the company that organized it, they know how to define adventure. It's because they didn't even tell us where we were gonna start or where oh. we were gonna end. So we didn't even have the opportunity to do you know how guides were always like looking yeah. at maps and doing tour planning and looking at like shortcuts and ways that we can maximize number summits or whatever. None of that. We had paper maps. They told us where we were going to start and where we we're going to finish literally the day we got on the plane to go to Mongolia, which is no easy place to get to. And, uh, and then they bust us out to um, the, the world's tallest statue of Genghis Khan. And, and we started there. they introduced as, us
1: as you do, as one does. Things.
0: That's yeah. right. Introduced us to point. our little mini motos and uh, told us where the finish line was. And, of course, uh, you, they expect you're going to run out of gas. You don't speak the language. You're going to get lost. And um, you have to carry everything that you need. <laughs> for 10 days on a 40cc motorcycle. So for me, I was like the perfect size. I'm small. My partner's small. You guys would be a little bit big, but there were guys on these bikes that were very large. And it was such an exercise in problem solving for everybody. And everybody handled it differently. And, you know, I think that's one of the beautiful things about adventure is it's like you're problem solving and thinking on your feet. And your goal is either the summit, my goal is always coming home. So the summit isn't the main goal Mm. Um, and making decisions along the way that maximize your fun and maximize your um, ability to return, maximize your risk tolerance and maximize your ability to problem solve, to manage risk along the way. So I guess for me, adventure is having fun in a new place doing something that's challenging, that is always part of it. And then engaging fully in the decision-making process with whoever I'm doing it with. Mm -hmm. And, and, and also with the goal of coming back friends because that in intense adventures, that's not always the easiest thing to do. If you're in a tent with someone for, you know, 10 days in a storm and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's all about attitude for adventure and, you know, it, it, any, any day can be seen as an adventure. And, and it, I think adventure has a connotation of like extreme risk or, um, you know, challenging someone to their ultimate potential. But for me, adventure is just, uh, exploring the world and, uh, my interaction with it, um, in a way that's fun.
1: I, I liked how you said, staying open to the possibilities. I was like, Oh, that that resonates really strongly. When you said that, that my energy perked right up. I was like, Ooh, ooh yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that.
0: Yeah. Like yesterday yeah, skiing up, we like skinned across all these rocks, you know, we we're on southerly facing slopes that we knew were really shallow and we weren't going to, we didn't have an old snow problem there. Um, and we're like, how are we going to ski down? You know, it's like, I was open to the possibility of finding a safe way down, but it didn't look very promising on the way up. And then that unfolded on the way down. We were able to keep our skis on the entire way down yeah. from the sun. It would hit, hit a few rocks, but, but not, not so bad. But, you know, if we would have looked at that um, going across and not seen that opportunity, would it, we would, probably would have just turned around. It's like, this isn't going to be fun at all because there was considerable elevation yeah. with rocks.
1: Sometimes you have <laughs> to put yourselves in a position to get lucky. And that's right. like, well, we might be walking back down this, that might be how it is, but that's right. Let's go take a look.
0: Yeah.
2: That's okay. too. I love, I love the the idea of like the openness to me, that's a huge part of it because like, as a perfect example, the first time I met banks, he called me out of the blue. Like a friend of mine was like, Hey, we need to get more B roll for this project they're working on. And it is the middle of the summer. And like, He's like, here's this guy's number. He's a mountain guide. He lives in Crested Butte. And I call him. And the first, he's like, do you have ice climbing gear? And I was like, no. (laughs) Also, it's June. Like, what are you talking about, mate? And and then he was like, okay, that's cool. But you got ski stuff? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, okay, sweet. We'll see you tomorrow. And then I was just like, well, dude, what am I getting into right now? Like, we need (laughs) ice climbing gear in the middle of summer. But just sort of that mentality of being like, Well, it'll probably be fun. If, you know, nothing else, it'll be a a good story. And, you know, I'm not someone who at this point in my life wants to be taking crazy, crazy risk. But that doesn't mean I can't still have like ridiculous fun going and doing stuff that I'm not sure how it's going to work out. Yeah. I feel like that's... I don't know. Well, That's like, so what the was spirit. the adventure?
0: I mean, that sounds, you can't just like leave us hanging like that. <laughs> oh,
2: that was the vi- I think you probably saw it. It was the video that we did where Jeff was skiing down the treasury Chutes. It's like, I just went up and Jeff, what was that called? What was yeah. That?
1: So some people call them the twin couloirs of treasury. They go into North pole basin. So you start at 13,000 feet and it's often great skiing in June, July, maybe even August in some years. And so I think we were, Sometime in July, maybe. And I was like, Dave, you know, you don't want to fall because you may not be coming back if you do. You sure you're okay on this? And Dave just side slipped it with shooting the video while I was skiing it. And I was like, he'll be just fine. (laughs) But then on the no,
2: I took turns. I have GoPro footage of of it.
1: (laughs) it. And it's a measured 50 degrees as well with a dog leg. So it's narrow, it's just enough to turn, but it's, uh, it's spicy and, and rewarding, but, uh, you know, not something you would usually do for a first date as a tour <laughs> and, and, uh, and certainly not, you know, filming the guy skiing ahead of you <laughs> as you slide down behind. And that Dave was super chill on the down, but he's like, Hey, I think I'd like a rope for the up. Cause I haven't really done any cramponing."
2: <laughs> and I was like, yeah, of course, no problem. You know, we're, team. and I this had, and all I had was my like, alpine boots. El Moro Bellas, or just no flex <laughs> in them. So it was hiking up like this, I was like, kept getting pushed back.
1: Frankenstein's yeah. like, Jeff, help! <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, you know, we had thought about that and we brought in a little bit of rope and had a crampon, so worked out. Always fine. prepared. Yeah, <laughs> usually. I wouldn't say always, but usually. <laughs> hey, should we segue into your adventures in the avalanche world? And you got a pro two you're teaching coming up. Yeah. So, what's a Pro 2 for? Who's it targeted at? And what skills are they going to get in that course?
0: Pro 2 is the highest level training you can get in the US currently. And this is targeted towards uh, folks that are transitioning and aspire to be leaders in their operations. It's very geared towards operational forecasting. Operational forecasting and and operational risk management in uh, the context of working in avalanche terrain. So uh, our typical students are ski patrollers, backcountry ski guides, avalanche forecasters. We've had um, event managers for free ride skiing competitions. Um, And what else? yeah heli forecasters like mechanized operations um so it's it's an amazing course because uh, the diversity of the clients of the students yeah. really lends to the 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 learning that goes on it's not just from the instructors but the sharing of all the students because they get in pods small working groups and their challenges for the program are uh, developing a forecast, um, baseline forecast, based on the snowpack that, that we're working in, which is always interesting here in the North San Juans. Yep. And, then, and this is for the Silverton Avalanche School, just a little bit south of where I live here. And in their small pods, they're given a, cha- a different challenge each day. So one challenge will be develop an operation for a risk management plan and a forecasting plan for backcountry ski operation. And they have a terrain envelope in which they're assigned which has numerous different avalanche paths and some very moderate, and some very extreme terrain. And we go out into that terrain and figure out where's the up track, where's the safe go-to up track. How can you guide this terrain in any condition, even in high avalanche danger? Mm. Can you, well, cool. can you produce a day of guided skiing here? And then, you know, looking at where runs are going to be and, um, looking at the eighth scale the, the avalanche terrain exposure scale and putting the avalanche problems into the terrain that are specific to, if I have an old snow problem, a persistent slab problem, this is generally in the terrain where I'm going to find that consistently. And that's pretty um, easy in the San Juans because northerly east and west aspects traditionally host a uh, persistent slab problem sometimes throughout the entire year if we don't have much snow depth, And then we do another operation, which is looking at a highway transportation corridor for a mine. And they have to look at how they're going to mitigate um, and manage um, workers, mine workers going in on a daily basis, many shifts, many times a day. Um, how they're going to keep that road and the exposure to avalanche hazard manageable. And um, here we're getting in more into the explosives they might use, um, the remote avalanche control systems and where they might place those in the terrain, and then what a snow safety plan will look like for that operation. And then the next operation is developing a ski area. And so now they have like three lifts that they can put in the terrain. So they've got fixed infrastructure that's exposed to avalanche hazard, and they have to have mitigation protocols. They have to have um, closure boundaries for the ski area. They have to have like a protocol for snow safety and know where to target specific problems given in a storm or given a persistent slab, or wind slab problem, and then develop a, treat- develop a treatment plan for that. And then the last exercise is they've evolved to be consultants, so now they go in and they review their peers' operations, and they provide um, feedback on how they think they did. And so it's a really great course for folks that, um, like us, love snow, love um, managing the risk of avalanche hazard and exposure, and look... Are looking to have a career in that because there's there's a lot of different um avenues that you can take as a snow safety professional beyond guiding that we're familiar mm-hmm. with that um you know any infrastructure that's built in avalanche terrain requires avalanche consultants to go in and design avalanche atlases mitigation plans things like that so it's a great program it's um you know you're I get to work with the highest level people in their careers already that are developing to be leaders. And um, the, the avalanche industry, is, as you two well know, has changed significantly over the years in, in many ways, thanks to the Canadians and a framework called the Conceptual Model of Avalanche Hazard that gives us a uh, risk management decision-making tool to work through the steps before we actually get even into the terrain so we make good decisions why we're in a safe place and we're thinking soundly before we go out there. And and obviously we can change our plan, but only so far.
1: Yeah. yeah. I love that idea of, Hey, most of the risk management happens at home when we're warm, dry, well-fed and we can have a conversation that's not in a blizzard and we can screen out most of the risk. I think that's a big um, secret or, misconception that like we are not shooting from the hip as guides when we're on the mountain. A lot of it is chess and it's 3d chess mapped out the night before the morning of, and then the last little bit, just the tip of the iceberg happens in the field.
0: That's right. Yeah. As you know, what I s- That's a super a most- cool exercise
2: of to go through and like those different.
0: Like it's, that sounds it's so great. Really creative and, what- and also super yep.
2: collaborative.
0: That's yep. right. Well, when, when I took my Canadian level two, which is a little bit, it's a longer program than the, um, the one that we offer here in the States, one of the coolest exercises, because a lot of this evolves around leadership, teamwork, communication, right? And as people who have evolved in our careers, oftentimes we're kind of set in our ways. We (laughs) are a little bit opinionated sometimes (laughs) and, um, oftentimes people don't speak up their opinions in a group. And um, so looking at communication and bias and uh, the way that we work as teams and the way that leaders encourage their teams to operate um, was really cool in the Canadian model, because one of our exercises was looking at case studies, but we had to, we had different um, roles. So one would be the devil's advocate and one would be, um you know the 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 person that's like uber stoked that is overconfident one would be the old crusty person that's been there forever yeah exactly the one would be the newcomer who's hesitant to speak up and yeah. we would have these sticky notes and so each exercise we would play a different role which was absolutely awesome to just think in that way because we don't often think outside the box of our own head and communicate how we would expect that person to communicate. And it it really helped bring out biases and it, it helped us see how everybody's opinion is valued in, in that process, that communication process when you're making decisions before you go out into the field. And it was it was a super cool exercise. Wait, so I have a, so I
2: have, a, I have a question. So when you're you're doing these like hypothetical, you know, you said like we have to plan out like a safety in and out route for a mine or something like that. Like, are they based off of real life locations, or is it just uh, these totally? These are based.
0: We have so many mines here in the San Juans, and we also have a lot of um, backcountry ski guided guided terrain. Um, not so much for the mechanized. Like, we're our operation area is not too far away from Silverton Mountain, which has you know that's mechanical ops. They have lift a lift one lift. And uh, Heliops. Um, so it's, it's pretty realistic. And the mines that um, we're forecasting for, there's actually mines at the head of all these valleys that are defunct. You know, they've, they've long, long since gone away, but the actual physical structures and the roads to them are, are still in existence. So that makes it with a lot of avalanche exposure. So it, it's really an ideal place for this program.
1: It'd be funny so to tell students that's why they went defunct because they got avalanched and wiped out their operations. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it could be true. Those guys were amazingly bold. They would,
1: out there their,
0: their way of mitigation would, would be um, tunneling through avalanche debris, which then they avoid completely avoided the avalanche. Oh, yeah. They would yeah, just go under the tunnel and take their mule trains. And there's uh, so many cool photographs oh and stories goodness. from the mines and the Along the Highway 550 here, it's it's just phenomenal. They were so bold.
2: No, and seriously, I, I just remember like I grew up in Durango, but like some of the mines you come across, or like you wouldn't even know you're by a mine, and then all of a sudden you're just like, wait, there's is that a freaking mine? Like they're everywhere. How, they, how did they they're get everywhere. here?
0: They're or everywhere. They're,
2: is it in Uray There's like a ladder that's just like up on the cliff. <laughs> yeah. and it's like if you're sitting in the hot springs. Jeff, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but you look like, you know, there's like, I don't know what, 800 foot cliff above you <laughs> yeah. and 200 feet up the 800 foot cliff. There's just a wooden ladder going up another like 150 foot stretch of it. And it really puts into perspective just, you're like, oh my God, these people. Yeah. Their yeah. appetite
1: for risk. Wow. Their, and- their
2: Tuesdays were the craziest thing that we've ever done.
1: <laughs> so, so Angela, you've been grappling with risk for decades now in the outdoor industry and you know what you're describing is so far removed from what the average person could ever even imagine and all these different ways that avalanche professionals could implement a risk management program how has your thinking of risk evolved over the years and since you've been working as a as a mountain guide
0: well it's evolved significantly having more of a process to um, make decisions with, and you know that's really only been in the last 15 years. Previously, um, it was almost all either acceptance or avoidance, um, which mm. was mostly avoidance. And that, I, I think that's why I'm still here, is because yes. <laughs> um, you know I have listened to my gut throughout my life, and I, and that is not that that is not a reliable way to to go about business when you're in the mountains, but. It has always worked for me, but I've always um, looked at mountains and the risk that that I've been exposed to through learning as much as I can from the experts. And from a very young age, I took my first avalanche course on Red Mountain Pass.
1: Oh, wow. It's coming full circle. Uh,
0: 1983 with Rod Newcomb and Don Bachman and I stayed at the St. Paul Lodge. And oh, wow. Uh, was a very green Prescott College student on Telemark skis. None of us could ski. And uh, (laughs) I I was hooked. Those two um, really clearly were like snow gurus. And, and, you know, we just looked up to them like they were, they knew everything there was to know about moving through the mountains. And, Mm -hmm. and I, there was so much I didn't know. I didn't even know what questions to ask at that point, but I yeah. fell in love with this place and a healthy respect for it and um, took a pro two years later and and then just started working. And it was really through the work opportunities that I had that my relationship to risk emerged through the training, working for Outward Bound, working for Prescott College. Um, I used to teach whitewater kayaking programs, which were – Prescott college that were probably the riskiest thing i ever did and i think that's why i got really into rock climbing because i realized if i had a rope i could be much more in control rather than just yelling at people <laughs> telling them what to do when they're underwater, <laughs> roll, when they're underwater roll. Stuck on a rock like oh my goodness and yeah. so most of my um experience with risk and my learning has come through working for programs that provide great trainings and and uh a, a solid framework around how to move with a group through the mountains. And now that's evolved to me being a trainer. So it's been like this theme of train the trainer, and now I'm the trainer that's training the trainers. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's been great. And I, I have, I uh, utmost respect for all my climbing partners and skiing partners that have not approached it from an educational perspective. Place And, you know, I think I'm just inherently curious and I've always valued education. So I've pursued kind of that direction to to learn how to move about in the mountains. And my friends that haven't, um, you know, they've had more of the School of Hard Knocks, which I've certainly had plenty of as well. Um, but they approach risk very differently, which I think is, is highly valuable when I'm out in the mountains with them and we can have discussions on what they're seeing and why they, why they think we should go up there or we shouldn't. And, um, we, it, it leads to really interesting conversations that are often different than I have when I'm with pros.
1: Can we oh, yeah. dive in to something you said that I perked up at where you said my, It was contradictory, but I I think we can explain it to the audience where you were talking about your gut and risk. Oh, don't get
2: Jeff going about the gut.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, if we take a high level view, like neuroscience has no idea where the seat of consciousness is. And a lot of folks are like, it might as well be the gut as well as the brain. Hmm. And so when we talk about my gut felt bad, I don't like this you know, what, what, how has your gut served you? And and when when would you listen to your gut? And when would you be like, hmm, I think my gut just wants to ski, steep powder today? <laughs> <laughs> how, do, how do you differentiate that? How has your gut served you well to keep you alive? Like, uh, you know, how, how does your gut talk to you when you when your conscious brain might not be on as caught up to your gut?
0: Yeah, it's a really hard one to nail down hard one to describe because it's 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 a feeling and it's a knowing at the same time. And, you know, there's days where I don't even leave the house. I have a plan to go and I just like I wake up and I got I have like spidey senses that are just like, ooh, something just doesn't feel right about today. And. You know, maybe it's the roads or maybe it's something that happened yesterday in the mountains that that didn't sit well with me. Um, but there's just that um, thing that I've come more to listen to when I when it comes across, <laughs> it just is a fleeting thing. It's it's not up in here, which is super interesting. And I find I have to override my um cognitive thinking to really start to listen to it. And, and sometimes like when I'm actually in the moment and my gut speaks to me and my spidey senses perk up, it, it is a feeling right in my gut. Like it's literally, um, <laughs> kind of like that constriction, a bit of butterflies, like uncertainty, um, and, the more you listen the more I listen to that the more I've trusted it and um, I think it's something that is very easy to discount because we're so thought oriented we're so like we think in our, our brains and there's so many stories going on then there all the time um, that it's difficult to override it but I've, I've begun to trust it more that it is something that I really pay attention to. I there was say, another part to your question there. I would
2: I would say yeah. something to this also though and correct me if I'm wrong. You said something that I think is key to listening to your gut in the right way, which is you have a healthy respect for the mountains. Yes. Which which I think if I think that actually probably can allow you to listen to your gut because you have that baseline of like, hey, at the end of the day, like I'm I am getting to play here. That's right. Like, I have no power over what happens here. And so like I think if maybe you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like if you're kind of approaching what you do from a fundamental level of like that mindset, then when you do have like the bad vibe or whatever, I think it's probably easier to identify or at least recognize when it's happening. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think?
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I'm conservative, so I don't often put myself into positions where I'm going to all of a sudden, have uh, to really shift gears quickly. The 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 places that I seem to get into trouble and in avalanche terrain, I'm very conservative. My home snowpack is here in the North San Juans, which is one of the most hazardous snowpacks in the world um, because it's shallow, it's high elevation. We get a lot of sun, which brings in a lot of solar radi- radiation, and because it's so high and clear, we have very cold temperatures at night which further deteriorates our meek snowpack as it is and uh, learning in the snowpack has given me tremendous healthy respect for the mountains for sure um, yeah it's it's just something that and and if i if you don't mind if i go on a little bit of a tangent here that's um, what yeah. this is all about
2: <laughs> that's all <laughs> we're doing here we don't have a plan you know but what the world really
1: needs you know, is two middle-aged white guys talking on a podcast right now. That's what they really need. That's what they're clamoring for. So by all means, digress as much as you as you want.
2: Oh, yeah. no.
0: oh, Jeff no. and I are really oh, saving the world. <laughs> <laughs> Yesterday, so great day up on, on red. Didn't have any spidey senses. Like It uh, just was a, a wonderful day. Coming down, we observed a large avalanche, a size 2, um that was skier triggered we stopped on highway 550 pulled off the road had a spotting scope looked at it it was on uh, the northwest face of red three which is rowdy terrain and we looked across at that and could see tracks going in to it and it looked very fresh and with further help with the scope we were really we were far enough away that like by the time we would have got there if someone was buried there was no way that we were going to help. So we actually ended up driving down and calling the sheriff to make sure that they were aware of it because we did, we did see tracks going in. We couldn't see tracks from our vantage point going out and we didn't know, um, how many people were involved, if it was, if they had done two laps or if it was a larger party, maybe a four or five. Um, so anyway, I just had an awful gut feeling. And, uh, when we saw that and, and saw the tracks going into it and, um, it just, fortunately everybody's okay. They deployed air, they both had airbags. It was a party of two. They both had airbags and they did skier, skier, trigger it, a rider trigger it. And they were buried, um, just very shallowly and able to dig themselves out without injury and self extricate. So that was a happy, happy ending. Um, and unfortunately, in Crested Butte, there was a, a fatality yesterday that was a very sad, tragic event. And, and uh, my condolences to the family and friends of all involved there. Um, so this gut feeling I had, it just was really um, illuminated, especially going into teaching a pro to. I'm always thinking about um, risk tolerance and how different we all look at risk and how we accept risk at different levels um, just inherently is who we are and how we approach the mountains and how we see things and interact and terrain. And um, it, it just is so fascinating to, for me how some individuals uh, will accept a much, much higher level of risk. And, and I'm always curious to, to understand um, the thinking behind that why they accept that, and do they feel like, um, you know, the the modern equipment that they're able to, you know, deploy an airbag, that that improves their chances of survival, and that makes it acceptable, or are they, um, is there pressure from social media that, you know, looking for the nice shot because everybody's posting powder pictures now, and this lights on this really nicely, or you know, this is a new ski partner and I, I really want to like make sure that I can ski with this person a lot because I like the lines that they're skiing. I mean, there's so many different factors there. And when we dive into this uh, training for the pro two, we look at the operational risk tolerance, the operational risk band. And that's something that we all have in a working place in avalanche terrain. It's like, what are our margins and how, 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 how big of an avalanche can we produce and like you know when you're when you're heli skiing your margins are going to be much greater than they would when you're backcountry ski touring because you have the helicopter as a backup every every guide's got a radio everyone's wearing an airbag you've got instant action with you the got helicopter.
1: explosives
0: you got explosives to come to the to the rescue so you know getting into bigger terrain is, is more. Wait, I'm sorry.
1: Have you ever used explosives on a rescue? I'd love to hear about that. No, yeah, wait. I was,
2: I have this question too. I was like, I, mean, I was like, sitting I here like me, how does that work? You can
1: test the slope before and you could keep testing it and mitigating throughout the season. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: You're like, okay, yeah. we found him go 10 meters that way. And put a charge in the ground, <laughs> break it up.
0: Yeah. 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 Uh, it's just fascinating. It's- and you know, I, I just, uh, We've we have a lot more uh, popularity amongst backcountry skiing everywhere, which is great that people are getting out and enjoying the mountains. And uh, it's it's amazing what we can get away with. And uh, I just really appreciate the tools that that you two are bringing to the community with um, uh, some processes for managing risk in avalanche terrain that pros have been using for a while now. It's a, it's a different, different way of using the tools, but it's the same mindset of like having a framework that's based on some data and your low, your actual current observations and very good mapping tools to help with the decision-making process. And uh, just kudos to you guys. Cause there's, you know, people, not everybody takes avalanche courses and, and there's a, there's, so much uncertainty there in the snowpack that even the pros don't know. So, increasing our margins of safety uh, for recreationalists is, is just awesome and pros alike. Kudos. Yeah.
2: Turns out almost nobody takes avalanche courses when you look at the data.
0: <laughs> is that right?
2: <laughs> yeah. What is it, Jeff? It's like 5 million people play in the backcountry every oh. year and 20,000 or something take an AVI course. Yeah. That's so,
1: like in shocking. about 300 years, we could get everyone educated at this rate. That's, that's a good strange. rate It's that'll, about that'll be super good percent of the public in avalanche train has not taken an avalanche course
2: that's, that's amazing that's yeah. super scary
1: give or take you know it's kind of back of the envelope but even if it's 90 percent has never taken an avalanche course you're like wow this is the riskiest thing people are ever going to do and i think that was one of the goals we were striving for is like hey this tool doesn't exist, how can we give people a simple framework that's similar to the guides list where you know some of these meetings can be knocked down, drag out about what's our go, no-go terrain for the day. And as it should be, because our lives depend on it at work. And I don't know how OSHA signs off on guiding. (laughs) I don't think they do. (laughs) Or ski patrol or anything to do with avalanches. My gosh, avalanche mitigation in any way. Um, You're dealing with explosives, you're dealing with avalanches, and the most unpredictable, of course, is the people. (laughs) And, you know, did I have my coffee? Did I poop yet? Did my dog die? Oh my gosh, you know, all that changes how I, you know, show up for morning meeting. Am I a conservative or aggressive mindset? And I think that's one thing that Aspect Abbey gives the recreational user is like, here is your run list. It's very simple. (laughs) and that's maybe a, a, a misperception. We're not as guides, whatever the setting mechanized or, or human powered, we're not making the judgment on the fly because we have x-ray vision in the snow and my gut tells me the bowl's gonna be good. It's like, no, 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 there's so there's a whole season's backlog of tracking data, cataloging data. It's like accounting for snowflakes basically. And, you know, that, that's what the pro two is really about. Yeah. And how do you share that data? How do you track the trends, and then choose the terrain where you're going to avoid the problems and stay on the right side of the slope yeah. angle, the critical slope angle for the day, and then be like, okay, this is our green list. This is our red list. We cannot switch on the the green light (laughs) like that doesn't work. We can do it tomorrow, but I can't do it today. It's Ulysses chain to the mast where you're like, I'm bound by this contract with my teammates and we're going to hash it out and we're going to hear everyone's opinion. And my God, you know, I think we've all been in working environments where we're like, this is a dysfunctional team or this is a highly functioning team where everyone's opinions respected, taken into account. And it's my obligation to speak up and be like, hey, I have a high degree of uncertainty about this. I think maybe we're going too aggressive today. I think we need more data. Let's do some explosives testing and let's find out. And then we'll green light it tomorrow. Yeah,
0: totally. exactly. There's so much background that goes into operational decision making or individual decision making as guides in a day that it, it it's not seen on the front end when you're out guiding for sure. And it's always great to have clients that are super curious and, and want to learn a lot about that. Right. Like pull back yeah. the curtain and be like, how do you make the sausage yeah. back here anyway? Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah. the you know, around even um, recreational avalanche programs, uh, you know, we're out there, you dig pits and you're looking at the layers and testing all the you know, fingers, hard hand hardness and <laughs> looking at crystals and, um, doing all the the tests and taking notes. And what your tool does is it, it, it helps remove the, that, uh, uncertainty about spatial variability. And, you know, when we're looking in the snow, it's a snow pit, that that's one small piece of the puzzle in a vast slope that is often interconnected, that has terrain features that are, variable, different bed surfaces. And so that little piece of information, although it gives us a lot of information as to like the structure of the snowpack, it doesn't tell us where we could trigger a slide. It doesn't tell us like if it is go or no go. But what I like about Aspect Avi, it just like puts that all over all the terrain based on the slope angle and on the aspect and the elevation that the problems have been identified by the forecast And then it lets us update that through our observations as we're traveling through the terrain with what we're feeling under our skis, rather than like stopping to dig a pit that gives us only just a little piece of the puzzle.
1: Yeah. That one, one millionth of the slope size, (laughs) my pit is so tiny. And I, I get the sense and I just want to clear it up for the listeners. It sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like your intuition, your gut feeling you use that to make more conservative decisions but yes do you use it to be like "Ooh, my gut feels good let's 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 go steep and deep today and, and go rowdy
0: no no not so much i'm good. uh it's more good. on the conservative <laughs> side when i get to the steep and deep it's all data-based and yeah. looking at the signs and the forecast and the where i am yeah. in the yeah. terrain slope angle is a huge yeah. one aspect elevation, I mean, all of that yeah. time of year, because the sun's interface with like different aspects, depending on the month of the year, it's either higher or lower is gonna Im- impact different slope angles and el- aspects.
2: Yeah. Can I Con- ask you? Can I oh. ask you? Oh, sorry, Jeff, we're about to start talking about Danny Kahneman.
1: You know me, uh, <laughs> let me just slip this in and then you hit her up. Um, he, he says our intuition is, is is our subconscious processing faster than our conscious brain can catch up. And sometimes you're like, I don't know about this. I've just got a bad feeling. This doesn't feel right. Let's step back. I, this doesn't feel right. And oftentimes, you know, you, I can't put my finger on it during the moment, but then we can talk it out later. I'm like, oh, that's what I was picking up, but I just couldn't. And you just put out a whole bunch of variables that as a professional, you're chewing on, your subconscious is chewing on and working overtime. That computer, it's hard to get it to turn off, especially when there's a big storm coming in and you've got clients and it is just churning, churning, churning. And I I think that's something to keep in mind as a beginner, we don't have that pattern recognition going on and that those years in the field, because for a normal professional, it's a hundred days, in a team setting, logging data, making observations, tracking trends, debating vigorously in a group with experts. It's not just, oh, I feel good about this <laughs> or I feel bad about it. And and then sometimes it can be the opposite. It could be so simple. Like when you were in CB with Mike and we're out touring and we would get these rumbling collapses and my sphincter just tightens up and I go, eek. <laughs> and it's like my intuition says that's not good and that's all i need to know (laughs) the earth just shook under our feet i'm pretty sure that's a bad sign (laughs) let's not ski anything steep today
2: (laughs) yeah we were on like a we were on like a pretty flat ridge when that was happening
0: yeah it was like flat terrain and the whole earth just dropped underneath of us multiple times i don't know make 10 11 collapses like a dozen
2: yeah 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 Yeah. I have yeah. to ask you something because we're talking all about like risk and like you know all these factors that you guys have taken effect and i think jeff you've also guided here but if when you go guide in antarctica how do you first off manage risk because that I, i've never even been to antarctica i don't know like <laughs> that sounds extremely tricky because it's so remote and then also like it's i'm assuming you're going in the summer so it's mostly sunshine the whole time right and the sun's just circling around like how do you manage it's
0: spring so it does get dark okay. yep there okay. are night it is it's early spring so the yep the days are getting longer and it's it's more mild and we are on the antarctic peninsula which is much more maritime than the continental right. bitter okay. cold uh mass of antarctica the the peninsula sticks out and is you know meets the drake passage and so you have a lot of warm water well warmish water that's influencing the snowpack and the temperatures there
2: so then so how okay. do
0: i how do we how do you manage yeah, so risk in is that
2: like do you just have a on call or what's the deal
0: no 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 that's a great question because um it is a true adventure so uh, a lot of the risk of like getting there and deciding where we can go every day That's the cruise ship operator. That's the expedition leader that is like at the helm with the pilot, the captain, deciding, like looking at maps of ice flows and where we can get into based on current ice, wind direction, tidal direction, all that kind of stuff. So the kind of the big picture of like getting there and crossing the Drake Passage like that context is not is way beyond my pay grade.
2: Cause and that's literally one of the I most dangerous places on throughout earth throughout
0: the whole Drake passage. So I managed the risk <laughs> of being seasick
2: <laughs> pro move, pro move. I'm a
0: land lover, but so. it's worth it. And then the penguins are definitely helpful in managing, like uh, uh, giving us indicators of like where we can get to shore because oh, we can land the Zodiac uh, anywhere. The penguins can hop up onto shore. And that's always, no way. Like that's, that's really why it goes. Okay, penguins. so the
1: crew handles the risk until they get you on the ice. That's right. And then I must imagine it must be really challenging to on-site because if I'm going to a glaciated place, so we got crevasses, seracs, so those are ice cliffs that can break off. We've got avalanches. Um, potentially steep terrain where people could slide on corn snow into the ocean or get avalanched into the ocean. Oh, my gosh. And I'm guessing, you know, it's there's probably not the the glaciers are probably changing rapidly and degrading like most places. Mm -hmm. And you also have the added challenge of um, I can get regularly refreshed satellite imagery of the glaciers at any time of the year and track the trends of the crevasse field. So I'm like, oh, hey, we're definitely gonna rope up for this zone. Whereas this zone's a compression zone. And for the whole year, there haven't been crevasses here. Do you have data like that? And how do you manage all those variables? My palms are getting sweaty. <laughs> well,
2: well, yeah. There are so well, yeah, many and also, variables. Like, like, sorry, I got one last thing. Like if you have someplace where like it, it literally never maybe never melts t- entirely so like maybe i'm super ignorant here help me out but like wouldn't there just be like an old snow problem
0: constantly no but that's a really really good co- question and and there isn't there where it's a maritime snowpack Oh, you've right. got the glacier rather than the earth which the glaciers colder so you typically aren't getting depth or development it's all ice you know, all the okay. snows falling on ice. And it's a oh, virtual sure. desert it's
1: from the from the core of the earth. Yeah.
0: There there yeah. it's a virtual desert. Really, it doesn't snow that much in Antarctica. It just persists for okay. a long time because it remains cold. Um, so most of the problems that we're managing are are if it's a persistent problem, it's typically like a wind slab, which will last for a couple of days, and, and those are pretty okay. easily avoidable. But um we're not Fortunately, managing old snow problems because that would even increase the complexity um, of, of so the all decisions. those
1: things we mentioned are easier to manage than the old snow problem on Red yes, Mountain Pass in your backyard. They
0: are. It's unbelievable. <laughs> That's that is very it, it's telling. Amazing, you know, but we manage the risk. You know, your question about um, the mapping, I mean, it's all on site guiding, which is one of the most exciting things about guiding there because. There are no good maps, even paper maps. I mean, the scale is is so large that it you can't, you know, it'd be like contour yeah. lines would be like 200 meters apart, you know, just really very, very poor definition. And then the digital uh, maps have, uh, it's almost impossible to know exactly where you're going to go. So uploading maps to be offline is tricky and they're just not well developed for Antarctica yeah. yet, at least for the peninsula. So even though we do our best, um, we, we do track our tours. And then when we come back, yep. say, upload them to Gaia or another app. And then you'll have some terrain features that, that you can see. But still, it's very, very poor detail. So it's mostly on-site guiding. And it's mostly going to places that we've been before. So we're from, we have some terrain familiarity from a guiding perspective. Mm. But we always rope up. As soon as we get on shore, we put the rope on. We guide within a team of two guides and four clients each, and we share a Zodiac getting to shore together. We have radio communication throughout the day. One team might go somewhere else, but we're always communicating, and we're kind of our little mini safety net. And then we also have safety in numbers because there's 25 guides, and um, we don't always go to the same zones, but we have a pretty robust Group of uh, experienced guides for any rescue that would be necessary. We don't use helicopters, although there is some heli skiing going on down there now with uh, some wow. of the super yachts. Um, and we, you know, read the terrain as we're going up, roped up. And um, if the weather's bad, the guide out in front puts some wands in to mark mark yep. the way and mark some crevasses. Cool. And, and right on. I and mean, it's awful if you have to wear the rope on the way down. It's very, oh. very rare um, that you do. Skiing with a rope on is awful. It's uh, the best it it
1: to on the downhill.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is awful. That's, it's so like the ultimate marriage down, test. It's much easier to see the crevasses and you come up that way so you know where they are. But oftentimes um, that exposure to the sliding and falling into the ocean is real and we do have corn spring and icy conditions oftentimes so we always have boot crampons and oftentimes we'll um shoulder or or put our skis on our pack and then short rope our clients or set a fixed line up and down these exposed sections unless mm. unless we've got really skilled skiers but that's uh oftentimes getting on and Dude. offshore is is the crux for sure is is that something where
2: like you they get you to shore and then they peace out back to the boat or they stay on shore. Yeah.
0: Yeah. They're like running laps, dropping people off and picking another group up and taking them to another landing. We always send a couple guides out before we go out with the clients to scout the landings. And oftentimes we have shovels and wands and we'll put emergency gear there in case um, we would get stuck there, which um, has happened once where we had a hut. I got, I I was stuck with Andrew McLean and Doug workman um, for probably about four hours. And fortunately we had a hut before we were extricated uh, by the ship for like made a, like eddy from the wind and they, they sent a Zodiac driver in to get us. And it it was, it was really dicey. We could have flipped that Zodiac easily, but that's very (laughs) rare, but we always have emergency rations on shore. um, And, and, good backup, good comps. And then, you know, you can't always get out and ski. That's the goal: is to get out as much as possible. But some days it's just too, yeah. too rowdy. Mm-hmm.
2: Is there like a specific window of time that you're only allowed to do it? That, like you said, it's spring. So it does have a day and night cycle. Is that like a three month window, basically, that you're allowed to do that. No,
0: it's probably about a two month window. Um, the trips that this company's starting to do is much earlier in the season. Now, this now they're going in October. We generally were going in November. Once you get a little bit later, it's just it, you're dealing with an isothermal snowpack, and it it just doesn't have um, enough structure and cold temperatures to support good skiing. That's hmm. when you go to All watch right. the go to see the penguins. okay yeah
2: Yeah. well thank you for answering that i was i when i was reading through your
0: it's a trip of a lifetime if uh any of you listening can afford it it's definitely put that on your your bucket list it's uh it's a remarkable wilderness area do any of those people
2: need cameramen
0: yes that's (laughs) true
1: (laughs) and now would be an appropriate time um Angela, a lot of times people ask me like, hey, Jeff, could you recommend a mountain guide for me? And I got to say, I'm really fussy because there's a lot of very technically proficient mountain guides out there. But I'm also looking for someone with a low risk tolerance where I, I know the people are going to come back and you're on my short list of people that I would recommend. And how would people get a hold of you if they wanted to go skiing or climbing with you? Because um, I know you do trips all over the world as well as locally right here in Colorado. What's uh, what's the best way to hit you up?
0: Well, not Instagram or Facebook because I don't respond to messages there. <laughs> so don't. <laughs> do for that. you. Yeah. <laughs> um, email or uh, my phone number. I think my phone number is on my website, which is very out of date. Uh, my website is alpinist007.com. Or um, AngelaHawes.com, and you can find me there, and uh, you'll find my email address, and that's the best way to reach out to me for sure. Thanks Which for that. Which I got to say,
1: you, you might have the best email address I've ever come across. <laughs>
0: the 007? Yeah, that was back in the day when we all, of course, I wanted Alpinist at maccom but... Yeah that was taken so i'm like oh i love a huge james bond fan so and i sense. love
1: the irony of like if you think back to like you know the old classic misogynistic bond movies <laughs> so yeah. it's just oh that yeah, it back. yeah.
0: <laughs> exactly
1: <laughs> yeah well we'll let, let people surf to your website there and then they can uh, check out what your email is it's pretty good um Hey, you started me thinking with Dave's questions on how do you manage the risk in Antarctica? And um, one thing that I've been curious about, and I think there's a, a gaping hole in the guiding industry, is we talk about risk management and we talk a bit about risk tolerance, but I've never worked for an operation that said, hey, this is our risk tolerance. And what I mean is, um, I was talking to a guide at our annual AMGA meeting, and he works for a heli operation uh, way up north. And they used to have a tongue-in-cheek motto that said, it's okay to take a ride as long as nobody dies. And that was what was told to clients. And I was like, whoa, I wish I had those superhero powers to be like, oh, this will only be a D1 and it's a high risk clientele and they're okay blowing an ACL but nobody is going to get buried or no one's going to get pushed off a cliff and they've since rethunk that after an incident where one of their team was killed and they're like okay it's not okay to take a ride anymore and that really got me thinking and I've I've asked my brother who's also uh, a guide and friend of yours and colleague and he's working up at CMH this year. And I was like, oh, tell me about your training, your orientation going in. And and it seems like it's something that's not really articulated in the guiding industry of, (laughs) are we okay with, I could imagine a spectrum of somewhere between hangnail (laughs) all the way up to mass fatality, worst case scenario, where everyone in the group dies. And there's this huge gray area of what is our risk tolerance And then we start throwing in minors, kids under 18, and you're like, whoa, this is getting really tricky. We are making decisions for their parents who are ignorant of the risk involved, (laughs) who are deciding whether their kids are going to be involved in this activity as well. And when I say ignorant, that's not condescending. It just means they're naive. It's it's they don't have that depth of experience where... We've lost tons of friends and colleagues, and we very well are aware of what could happen if things go wrong. And and that weighs very heavily on us a lot when we're deciding what our run list is for today. So that was a bit of verbal diarrhea, but you've been grappling with <laughs> you got operational risk management and you're about to teach it. So what are some of the questions that you've grappled with? I'm not expecting like a silver bullet of here's the answer, Jeff, I've got yeah. to figure it figured out. But I'm just curious about. You know, you've been head of an organization that could be called the largest guiding operation in the U.S., and there's a huge amount of risk exposure when you're having students be on the sharp end of the rope leading or guiding. And it's like, whoa, you know, how do we manage risk in that operational setting versus heli guiding versus in Antarctica? You've done it all. So lay it on us. What are some of your thoughts? (laughs) More questions. It's, all the
0: gut. it's all comes from the gut, Jeff. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: why it's really important to drink lots of kombucha. You want to keep that gut flora happy. That's right. like probiotics the better key.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, that's a big question, and you're absolutely right. I think it's not articulated well, uh, and the avalanche industry is evolving, so we are starting to develop more criteria around what is acceptable and what isn't. And again, as we talked about earlier, it's going to be different for like a mine that you're going to be driving in a vehicle that yep. you're the the size of an avalanche that's acceptable to hit the road, considering someone's in a vehicle and wearing avalanche transceivers and has rescue gear and radio comms is Going to be much higher than it would for backcountry operation where your resources are much more limited. You're on foot, mm. um, you don't have maybe communication at all with the outside world. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's pretty generally understood that we don't expose ourselves or guests to an avalanche that could produce the size that would bury and kill a person which is a size two, a D2, destructive size two avalanche. And that's not even that big of an avalanche, really, that can produce that much debris. And if you um, consider that there might be a terrain trap that could multiply the debris, um, the depth, um, then that that makes it even worse. But uh, it it has, I would say, certainly amongst... um, ski patrollers been acceptable to ski cut um, size two terrain, which is, I think the culture could take a step back and reevaluate that a bit uh, because you are exposing workers to something that could produce a slide that could potentially kill someone. And where that slide's going to release above or below and a ski cut visibility, there's a lot of factors there that um, have been fairly accepted by that industry. Um, not all ski areas are like that. Some much have much smaller um, tolerances. They might say, we're not going to ski cut on any terrain that could produce a size 1.5. And then, again, how we interpret the size of a, an avalanche is a whole other ball of yeah. My D2 might be a D1.5 to you, you know, so there's, there's so many factors there, but, um, I think in the ski guiding realm, um, we've gotten comfortable with smaller avalanches like size one D1 that, um, could produce an avalanche, but isn't going to result in a fatality necessarily, unless there is some magnifier involved, um, but it isn't well articulated. I think our run lists in the morning kind of get at that, but we don't necessarily articulate that consistently in the industry. It's a good point.
2: Okay. Hold up. I got to ask this question because I feel like I'm just like hearing this for the first time. Did you just like, are you guys saying that there's no like global standardization for risk threshold for any guiding operation? It's per? No. No. It doesn't yes, exist. Yes,
0: no, that's wrong. Yes, there is. Like for a highway, um, uh, like Cdot, the Colorado Department of Transportation, they're going to shut down the highway if a yes. size a D three avalanche could hit the road potentially okay. and you know bury and destroy a car. Um, so, yes. In some industries, there are consistencies. I don't know if that's the same in Europe as it is in U.S. and if it's the same in Canada, but, um, you know. some
1: nuances with legal system where if I'm a mountain guide in Europe and let's say I'm in Italy, if it's considerable or high danger and I have an accident and my client dies, I'm automatically convicted of manslaughter because what's the definition of considerable danger? Yep. It's human triggered.
0: It's likely likely.
1: And the judge is like, why were you going there? And I'm like, well, I didn't think it was going to slide. And they're like, that's right. You didn't think your sole job, your prime directive is to bring them home alive, even if they have to double pull down that low angle slope. (laughs) But, you know, and I've I've had colleagues in Europe, three who have that you know, they lost a client at considerable or high danger. And the judge threw the book at him and said, Hey, the law is the law. And you were an avalanche train at considerable danger. And if you got it wrong, you're going to pay the consequences. And it's an interesting way of thinking at it. And I think what we're seeing now in the rash of close calls, it's interesting, like looking at the, the CAIC or the Utah avalanche centers, you know, like here, here's our summary for the last month. And it's like a hundred skier triggered avalanches. And no fatalities until just recently. And you're like, oh my gosh, we're we're really getting lucky because it's been a very unstable year. An inordinate number of high danger days and considerable days mm-hmm. speaks to the instability we've had in snowpack, yet very few fatalities. We're way behind the seasonal average for deaths. And I would say we're, we're getting pretty lucky in that regard because lots of people aren't getting the message like in Italy or if I had an accident, Germany or Switzerland, Austria—they'd run it through an algorithmic approach that they're trained in—and said, "Hey, you were Jeff. You were in the red, and you're going to suffer the consequences." I'm sorry, and um, it's a very different way of thinking. But I think you know, you, my catch-up, and I were all on the same page. Hey, it's considerable. It's been at considerable for days, except when it was at high. We are staying out avalanche terrain and keeping it super chill. And it was such a relief because I felt a little stress as the local hosting you to provide the goods because you've been working and driving and doing clinics. And you're like, hey, we need to play. And I'm like, I do, too. And and then I was so relieved that we were all on the same page. And we we're just like, yeah, we're just going to keep it chill. And we had such fun skiing. And I was so not stressed skiing. once. It was such a great. relaxing day. It was great. It was great. a great day. Which, when you're skiing with a group of five that you've never skied before, that never happens, and it was really lovely to do that, share that.
0: Yeah. And the Jeff, the you can only... always blame
2: it on me. I have all <laughs> all the camera gear. Just be like Dave's a rock. He can't he can't get caught, dude.
0: Uh, you know that uh, part of that decision making was anywhere it was steep, we were skiing on a crust, so there was not a persistent weak layer underneath. And we also skied some steeper terrain in old growth forests and it was heavily anchored, uh, lots of tree bombs had hit that. I don't want to reveal any secrets here, but it was an amazing stash, um, that we were able to ski because of those two factors, um, where you chose to take us.
1: Yeah. And I, I would, I would be pedantic on one point. Um, if we dug around those base of the, the old growth forest, I don't think we're go- I think we're gonna find sugar around the trees. Mm-hmm. but I, I don't think it's so much acting as rebar and concrete to anchor the slope that we might see that in a maritime snowpack where it's all pencil or knife hard. But I think yeah. what it does is it's so disruptive, right. It's such a thick forest that only experts can ski through and all those massive tree bombs. I'm psyched we didn't get hit by any because some of yes. those craters were like something you'd see on the moon, right? It's like a 50 pound boom. <laughs> I'd be like, ah, oh, I got to go to the chiropractor um, if I survived and it, you know, it disrupts the weak layer. So you just yeah. don't have a continuous weak layer and it's a very localized spot because there's certainly areas where you're like, oh, hey, let's go ski in the trees. And you're like, well, what does that mean? Is it an open glade that an intermediate could ski? You're like, oh, that's not enough disruption on the week Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, it was a great day out. Really yeah, enjoyed getting out with you guys.
1: Yeah, it it it, it's fun to just ski with people in the same mindset, so that it's really yeah. relaxed. I, I'm over yeah. that yeah. point. My
0: ski I've partners are me. my ski partners are either guides um, or folks that have been around the block a long time and uh, have lived to ski another day.
1: Yeah. My, my list is very short. I'm, I'm quite yeah. particular. Yeah.
0: Me too.
2: I feel honored <laughs> to be on both of your lists.
0: Oh, you're fun to ski with.
2: Um, well, we should probably wrap this up because we've, we've taken up a lot of Angela's time. It's been very nice okay. of you to hang out with us, but Angela, I wanted to ask kind of a, just like a final question to you, which would be like, is there something that you see like clients or normies like me, just like people consistently doing in the backcountry that you're just like face palming and you're just like, how is this not getting across? Like, how are people? Like, if there isn't, that's great. But
0: <laughs> um, you know, it's really I think not that much really, which is impressive. But the one thing that I do see people struggle with is layers. And um, being comfortable and not sweating on the up and then being cold on the down without having to change, take off your top layer and all that. Um, and I guess, you know, that often is influenced by your pace. So if you're you're sweating a lot, one, you probably have too many clothes on and, and two, you're probably going way too fast for your um, body and your comfort level. Um, but I seem to be able to just like trudge along most of the day on a tour wearing pretty light underneath. And then my, my shell and I have nice pit zips and I can open the front and I seem to be able to do that. And then I'll put on a down jacket over top of that shell. When I stop, maybe I'll leave it on for the down, um, or maybe just take it off. Cause I'm generating a lot of heat going down as well. So. It's, mm-hmm. it's managing those layers and keeping your core warm enough that your hands aren't and toes aren't getting cold because once you start sweating and you cool down, your hands and toes are going to start to suffer. Um, so yeah. Layering's layering's a science. Layering. Dave, is Jeff Yeah, Jeff, I want to hear yours. Yeah. From, sure from, from an analyst family.
1: perspective, it's, it's what we've seen in all the close calls and accidents that have happened in our, yeah. zones in the San Juans and here in Crested Butte in the West Elks is that it's considerable danger with an old snow problem and people are skiing steep terrain. So that's over 30 degrees black diamond terrain. And the last part is they're skiing exactly in the blacked out critical danger zones. Yeah. And it, you can get away with it for a while, but eventually it will catch up to you And that's a very hard lesson that I had to learn because I thought I was outsmarting it and I was in the snowpack every day and I had my finger on the pulse until I didn't. And I got it wrong. And I was lucky enough to be okay, but I've just lost too many friends and colleagues who were super experts. Mm -hmm. And it's not that they weren't really highly trained. It's just that the world is a really unpredictable place. And we're, if we're going out there so many times, it's going to catch up with us or one of our friends very quickly. And my, my, my wish for the backcountry community is, hey, watch out for those ingredients. Considerable, old snow problem, going where the blacked out critical danger zones are and going over 30 degrees. That's, that's a recipe for trouble. And I wish all of my backcountry travelers in the community to have a long and adventurous life instead of a short, exciting
0: life. Totally. That's great. Amen
2: on that one.
0: Amen on that one. Well said. Uh, and I can ask you guys a question. Can't I? Yeah, hit us up. Yeah, this is for both of you. So, um, you're not spring chickens anymore. You're a little, a little <laughs> been around the block, both of you. Um, actually I have two questions, but this one for both of you is like, what would you tell your 20 year old self, uh, about risk and decision-making? Cause I know, um, You know, Dave, I don't know you as well, but Jeff, I know that you in the past have a, your risk tolerance was probably higher than it is now. And, uh, what, what have you learned since you've been 20 that you would have, you'd look back and tell your 20 year old self now?
1: Dave, you you want want to take it first?
2: Sure. Well, Angela, I, I spent my, my twenties skiing slope style and half pipe. So like, it's actually kind of funny. I feel like I have a really strange relationship with risk. Um, there's like a really, really narrow part of my life where I'm comfortable taking extreme risk, which is skiing park, like or resort skiing, because I'm like, I've done more of that than anything else, period. But because of that, and you can talk to my wife about this she's like always complaining like i drive like a grandma i'm like a pretty conservative biker like and 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 then skiing you know i love hanging out with people like you in the backcountry because i learn so much and i and it really teaches me about like shows me all the things that i don't know consistently or just am not thinking about even though i've heard it i haven't retained it and so i think it's funny when you're like, what would I tell my 20 year old self is like about risk? Like, that's a really hard question because I feel like I've had a, like, fortunately I've had a pretty good relationship with it. I would say outside of the like park skiing. I've just, I think I've done enough, maybe stuff that I knew I wasn't good at that. And then it like spanked me and I was like, Oh yeah, duh. I'm not, I don't know what I'm <laughs> doing. Like, but I would say like, keep learning. I would tell myself to like, keep stay curious and keep learning and and like try to absorb as as much knowledge from those around you as possible, which I feel like we're kind of doing here with yeah. this, which is awesome. Yeah, it's great. What do you think, Jeff? Uh, for me, it's the
1: Dunning-Kruger effect where John Cleese put it really well. He's like, stupid people have no idea how stupid they're being when they're doing stupid things. And we just don't know what we don't know. And so if we're a novice at something, we think we got it. And I was just surfing this week and I thought I had it paddled in, caught the wave. It was overhead. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm really doing this. Get to shore. I'm celebrating with my mate. He loses control of his board. I'm looking the other way. The board whacks me in the head concussion. I'm fucking down. (laughs) And that was the perfect metaphor where You know, I had this little taste of what I perceived as mastery, which is ludicrous, right? Because I don't know how to surf. But um, I got lucky, you know, blind squirrel finds the nut kind of deal. And, And I was like, woo, I figured it out. And the universe just smacked me aside the head and like, listen, this is infinitely complex. And the experts, the absolute experts don't have it figured out. And that's the same way in the avalanche game. And I thought I had it figured out. And I was just on the cusp of basic <laughs> proficiency. <laughs> no, in fact, not even. <laughs> and and so you you're on the peak of Mount Stupid, and you get the smackdown, and you're in the valley of despair. And then hopefully the line up on the graph is tracking your proficiency with your perception of where I where I am. And I wish I had a better gauge. But actually that's something that aspect Abby gives me is, you know, when we looked at our tour track afterwards, I'm like, did we stay out of the red or, you know, did we take any high risk moves? And it forces me to confront that. And I can't just go by, it felt good because <laughs> our skiing felt great. We were having so much fun, but you know, I have to look at it hard and fast and be like, Oh, did we cross into the red? Okay. Why? And what are we going to do next time? So we make sure that we we have a low risk tour over and over. So I, I think that was it. It's just like, Hey, that overconfidence yeah. when you're new at something, you you're just set yourself up for the get blindsided, yeah. but the surfboard in the head.
0: <laughs> that's great. dude. So
1: <laughs>
2: much, never so many learning. times that's happened to me. And I can't, I'm like, why do I never learn? Like this isn't, everything. Chris different. hit you
1: in the head with his board too?
2: Yes. <laughs> no, but like, <laughs> dude, he's everywhere. <laughs> no i remember like oh, i remember surfing in costa rica and being like my first big bail off the board like went in fully open like mouth open like didn't tuck and roll at all like got <laughs> literally got sand in my mouth and was like <laughs> like came out like you know and like it was just like my buddy my buddy is there he's like dude Number one rule when you bail off a board is like getting a ball, like tuck and roll. You know, like I'm like, oh, duh, right? Because I actually
1: didn't know that. (laughs)
2: Like, now you know. (laughs) But, but I was just like, oh, you know, like I don't know, man. I agree with you. There's so much stuff out there that you just don't know about that. You got to just approach everything very humbly.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think that's Uh, what's so fun about doing something with the beginner's mind is like. Oh, stuff. I don't have to be the expert and feel that pressure of knowing it all. And I can just be open to being like, hey, tell me what I'm doing and what I need to change and like give me feedback. It's, it's, it's a really kind of fun place to be. And and uh, yeah, it's it's funny because like I can only imagine how when I'm looking at people doing what I think is like really far out stuff skiing where I'm like, whoa, <laughs> I'm sure people were laughing at me all week at the beach, <laughs> just like, man. <laughs> That guy. If
0: he survives <laughs> another week. It'll be, a be a-
1: <laughs> and I, How many people did I cut off and not even know?
2: <laughs> That's awesome.
0: That's good. Well,
2: That's Angela, good. thank you so hey, much got, for hanging I'm out. Gonna to oh. ask you,
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you one more question, and I think okay. this is a hard one. Um, this is back to our uh, <coughs> operational wristband, our okay. wrist tolerance, and. Um, something is very interesting, more so in the high alpine, how high altitude mountaineering world is uh, risk tolerance and how that's different for gender. Um, in the past, oh, wow. women who have gone away to climb eight thousand meter peaks or very technical undertaking have often been heavily criticized if Double they have standard. Children yep. for taking that level of risk which the culturally is deemed unacceptable for a woman, whereas many, many more men have um that have kids have taken those risks and the public hasn't been very condemning. Totally Great, right. good yeah. job. Um, yeah. wow. And I just, uh, you know, wonder what you're all's perception of that and is if, if we're going to see a shift. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's just also like goes to like the risk that we're going to take as citizens of the U.S. to not vote. Like I just talked to a friend the other day. He's like, oh, I never vote. Yeah, I don't do politics. I'm like, oh, my God. Like you're how right. many people do I know might not vote that I don't even know they're not going to vote? I mean, what a risk is that going in? And and we, and it's just compl- I don't know what it is complacency or thinking that our voice doesn't matter. It'll um, all work out. <laughs> it'll all work out. We'll deal with it as it comes. This is super interesting. But back back to the risk tolerance on you know high altitude mountaineering and a woman's place is maybe not there mm. culturally or culturally acceptable. What are your guys thoughts on that?
2: That's really interesting. Like I. I've never really like, at least for me, I'm that's that thought has literally never crossed my mind of like, if your woman is going and doing something extreme, like to me, like if some lady wants to go free solo, El cap that in that my mind is the same level as nutso as Alex Honnold doing it.
0: Like Mm -hmm. I
2: don't have a, a base layer of judgment towards their decision-making, but that's a really interesting, um, kind of like thought, I I don't know. I I didn't think about that before. So thanks for bringing that up. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's something it's, it's definitely a real thing. Um, and you know, who, who are those that are judging? Are they climbers? Are they, um, just people who are reading about it in the media? Um, I, I seem to think that it's probably not as much the climbers as it is the general, Public, Um, But it's just an interesting since our conversations evolved a lot around risk tolerance. That's something that comes back to me because I live in that high Alpine high altitude climbing world and and to have a community there and um, it's, it's challenging for women. Yeah,
1: and I think it's really hard for me to reflect because if the, if you wrote a formula, our variance over time equals our bias. And if I have a bias, it's unconscious. I'm not aware of it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that is really tricky to start with. And then how I consume the news. And I think of two distinct stories that are similar, the Hillary O'Neill and Alex love mm-hmm. and how those tragedies were portrayed. And there's a strong family component in each of them. Yeah. And it's hard for me to filter through my bias and then the media bias that's informing me, but I definitely got the sense and it didn't sit with me well that it seemed like the perception was that the risk Hillary was taking, it's not socially acceptable, but the risks Alex Lowe was taking were socially acceptable. That was the feeling I got. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know. Is that,
0: yeah, different. yeah, that's the feeling I've had with a number of women that have uh, unfortunately passed in the mountains. Yeah. yeah, and you know, a mother, a mother's relationship to children is is different, but it's still it it shouldn't be that different. It shouldn't be that it's culturally unacceptable for a woman to do something that is exactly the same as as a man's willing to do as well. Yeah, yeah interesting. Yeah, I'll leave you at that that's... with uh, food for yeah. thought. And how yeah, we evolve as a, a culture moving forward with high levels of risk and uncertainty all around us. And thank you guys for aspect Abby. I mean, this is just an amazing undertaking and a, a risk that um, you are embarking on. That is just uh, it's high level, you know, it's financial risk, social risk, uh, litigation risk. I mean, all this, it's like, it's, it's a bold undertaking, and I applaud you both for, especially you, Jeff, with your investment and your visionary, uh, just thought process in moving this forward. Because it's it, it's not <laughs> you need a lot of resources to pull this off, and somehow you've managed to put together an amazing team.
1: Thanks, Angela, and it, I definitely you know there's no way we could do it without the backing of the community and the backcountry community has been incredibly supportive of it and people like you as well and lending your voice to it. And, uh, but then, you know, everyone who's been involved and contributed in the project, giving us feedback, investing and, and helping us with our team, like Dave, who handles our product our content production and videography and podcasting. So it's, it's definitely a team effort, but, uh, thanks. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Heck I look yeah. forward to, to watching it evolve and grow.
1: Yeah, and I am absolutely mortified that you couldn't get your, that we couldn't get the pro code for you to work because you were one of the earliest testers. (laughs) <laughs> and it glitched the system, so you actually bought it out of your own I did, pocket.
0: I did uh, Yesterday right. morning, I purchased it before yeah. I went to Red Three. I gotta say,
1: it. is the ultimate testimonial when the <laughs> president emeritus of the Guide Association buys the app out of her own pocket. Who gets everything for free? So I, right. dinner's on me. Dinner's on me. <laughs> next time.
0: No, I was happy to happy to contribute, <laughs> and I used it, and it was great. It, it kept me out of the red.
2: Okay. Heck yeah!
0: <laughs> you guys are great right. thanks so much right, guys yeah. it
2: was awesome thanks, hanging man. with you, see ya. Yeah,
1: you see ya
2: thank you so much for listening to all aspects if you like what we're doing here please leave a rating interview it really is the best way to help others find the show thanks again to our business daddy aspect abby for making this show possible to learn more about how aspect abby is making avalanche safety simple go to aspectabby.com you want to use this powerful new tool on your next backcountry adventure simply download the app from the app store and enjoy 30 days free on them lastly a special thanks to ice lab for helping us produce this show you guys rock and we couldn't do without you thanks again for listening and we'll see you in the backcountry